Welcome to the Genesis Church Podcast. We'll have more information at the end of the podcast, but for now, please enjoy this week's teaching. Our second reading this morning is from Judges 4, verses 1 to 10. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hegoyim. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and had oppressed the Israelites cruelly for 20 years. At that time, Deborah, a prophet, wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Position yourself at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the Wadi Kishon with his chariots and his troops. I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 warriors went up behind him, and Deborah went up with him. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, everybody. It is wonderful to be with you. My name is Dan Cook. I'm one of the pastors here at Genesis, and it's always a pleasure for me to worship with you guys. I'm very excited to talk about this particular uh, scripture passage this week. As Will mentioned, um, next week is our final Sunday of Ordinary Time. It's the last time we get to, in this church calendar year, focus on being ordinary apprentices of Jesus, and what does that mean? Pastor Kara is going to lead us through kind of a final summary of what that looks like next week. Of course, that means the week after that is Advent, and that's a whole new church calendar year, and we're really excited. Yes, the artwork that you currently see will be going away, but there will be Advent-specific artwork that we'll be bringing in, and so uh, we like to have that as part of our worship space here in, uh, in this building, and so we're excited. I'm really excited about the theme of this year's Advent services, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But we still have this, this week and next in Ordinary Time. And this week, we're going to talk about celebrating diversity amongst ordinary apprentices. Because as Will alluded to, we've talked about many, many times here at Genesis that we feel, you know, everybody, everybody is made in the image of their creator. That God encompasses all of gender and all of identity. We don't say that God is genderless. We say that God is gender full. All of that gender, all of that identity, all wrapped up in God because all of us are made in the image of our Creator. But unfortunately, there are some voices in and amongst that all that have been marginalized, that have been put to the side, that have, been, that have attempted to be silenced. 
for various numbers of reasons, many of which you're familiar with. I won't get into all of them, but you know what I'm talking about. But today's text brings one of those voices back to the fore. And so we want to highlight that and talk about Deborah's voice and what does it mean to center that voice, to celebrate that voice, and to normalize that voice. But to understand Deborah and understand her voice, we have to start with understanding this book of Judges, right? So quick thumbnail there. If you'll recall your history, (laughs) Moses leads the people to the promised land, but not into the promised land. That's Joshua's job. But before Joshua leads the people into the promised land, they renew their covenant with God. Part of that renewal, part of that covenant, is a promise on behalf of the people not to adopt cultural and religious identities of some of the nations which surround this area that they're moving into. Everybody agrees, that's a great idea, we're going to focus on Yahweh, God will lead us, this is going to be great. I go into the promised land, Joshua eventually passes away, and there's no singular figure to replace Joshua, because now God has moved his people into the promised land, God is their king, God's the only leader that they need. Unfortunately, as a generation passes, people start to forget that promise, people start to stray from that promise, people start to leave the path that God has laid out in front of them, which is something we call sin. Just missing the mark. That's all sin is. And that missing of the mark carries consequences with it. There's a reason God has said, don't mix with these other cultures and these other religious gods, not because his ego needs stroking, but because there's problems that come with that. And the Israelites realize that as they start to stray, as they start to adopt some of these other gods, the other nations around them use that religious connection to start to infiltrate Israel and start taking over portions of Israel to start robbing Israel of its resources and to start oppressing its people. And there comes this cycle where that, when that starts to happen, the people gather together and cry out to God and say, God, help us, deliver us from these oppressors. God raises up a judge, a temporary leader. That leader helps guide Israel back to the trajectory, back to the path that God has laid out for them. And then they know peace and they know joy for about 40 years or another generation. And then they start to stray again and the cycle repeats itself. And it does that over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Which brings us to Deborah. Some of those judges uh, were good, moral, righteous people. Some of them weren't. Deborah was one of the good ones. Deborah was the fourth judge in Israel's history. Deborah is described even in this passage as a prophet one of only two women in the entire Bible named as a prophet. She's described as someone whose wisdom and counsel was sought out. She's described as a mother. She's described as a wife. And God raises her up, as we see in this passage, because the people had strayed, and their sin carried with it the judgment of that sin, which meant that this King Jabin of Canaan starts to take over certain areas and has this massive military that they talk about. When you see that term, 900 chariots, remember in the Old Testament, numbers are more symbolic than they are actual counting. Nobody went to Jabin's and, okay, how many chariots does he have? 900, boom, no. Any multiple of 100 you see in the Old Testament basically means he had a ton of chariots. A massive, formidable military force, which would naturally concern the folks that he's oppressing. So Deborah is brought to this leadership position of being a judge. And she's asked to help formulate a plan to throw off the oppression, to restore the peace and the shalom in Israel. And we read about what kind of leader she was. 
We read about in verse 5 that she used to sit under this palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, which is just the northern area of Israel. And the Israelites came up to her for judgment. This hill country area in the northern part of Israel was not any place special, but it was on the way to every place special. So she was very strategically placing herself someplace where the maximum number of people could have access to her, access to her wisdom, access to her counsel, access to her prophecy. That's smart leadership. That's solid leadership. That's what a good leader does, makes themselves accessible. Verse 6 tells us that she had the power, she had the authority, she had the gravitas to summon a male military leader and explain to him what the plan was. Imagine a woman explaining to a male military leader these days what the plan is when it comes to military campaign. That would be a fun change, wouldn't it? You should try that maybe once or a bunch of times. Um, but she had not only that authority, but she had the gravitas, she had the ability for that person to come to her and trust in her leadership, to trust in her wisdom. We've all worked with people that wear the title of leader. She may have had the title of judge, but we've worked for people that have the title of leader that couldn't pour water out of a boot if the instructions were written on the heel. You all know what I'm talking about. I can think of several bosses that I've had, not here, but at my other job, that just, it, these are not the people you want to follow. I think we all also know people at our workplaces that don't wear the title of leader, but know how to get things done. And so when stuff needs to get, when answers need to be sought, when we need to get stuff done, we go to those folks. So it isn't about the title, it's about competency, it's about knowledge, it's about experience, and she had all of that and exhibited all of that, and that's why a male military leader had no problem taking orders from a female leader in this case. Leadership is about having the trust of the people that you lead to the point where they'll follow you generally without any kind of complaint or dissension, and that's what we see in Deborah. So we see in this story that female leadership is far from being prohibited by the Bible, is actually promoted in the Bible. We see that in this story. We see that in the story of Miriam, Moses' sister, who helped lead the people out of the Exodus. We see it in the story of Esther, a queen in the Old Testament who helped save the Israelite nation as a whole. We see it in the story of Tabitha in the New Testament who led a Christian community at Joppa. We see it in the story of Junia, who's named as an apostle in one of Paul's letters, definitely a leader. We see it in the story of Phoebe, who was the leader assigned to bring Paul's letter to the Roman church. And the person that brings those letters to those churches is usually the one tasked with explaining it. That's leadership. And can we please always remember that the very first person ever to preach the good news of the resurrection, the first person ever to say that Jesus had been risen was a woman, Mary Magdalene. The very first preacher, Christian preacher ever was a woman. Let's not forget that. So three years ago, as we were in the very early throes of the pandemic, I preached a sermon on this particular passage. This is when we were still all at home, so I was in my little office cubby with, surrounded by many, many books, feeling very comfortable. Thank you. A great microphone. Yeah, I had the whole radio microphone set up there, right, for podcasting purposes. I had two main points in that sermon. And the first point was that anytime we build a theology around who gets to be in charge rather than focused on who we are to serve, we've, we've made a mistake. We've gotten off of the path. That was the first point. 
And the second point was to remind people, male, female, anything in between, whoever you are, you do not need anyone's permission to follow God's calling in your life. Whatever it is God calls you to, you don't need to look to somebody else and say, well, is it okay if I do? No, go, do it. Those were my two main points. And that was a pretty good sermon. I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty happy with it. It's not the sermon I'm preaching today. And it's not the sermon I'm preaching today, not just because I don't want to repeat what I said before, but because in those three years, I've grown and I've evolved and I've changed and I've expanded. And I think there's more here than just that fact that women are capable and should be leaders in the church. There's more to it than just that. I think the story of Deborah proves not just that women can lead, but it demands that their voices, their presence, and their leadership be centered, be celebrated, be normalized. Several weeks ago, there was a group of us that went to the Evolving Faith Conference, which was at the Minneapolis Convention Center, Sarah Bessie's annual gathering. And it was me, and it was a bunch of women from Genesis. And when I walked into the building, it was me, and it was a bunch of women from around the area. And when I walked into the auditorium, it was me, and it was a bunch of women from all over the country. And there were other guys there too. But this was one of the few places I've ever been in in my life where I was very, very much outnumbered as a white male. And it may be a, yeah, duh, idea to the rest of you, and I, it's fine, that's fine if it is. But it was a moment where I walked in and went, oh, I'm not used to this. I'm not used to looking around and seeing people of different, gen- the majority of people of different gender than I am. I'm not used to looking around and seeing people who are, might be queer, or might be trans, might be persons of color, whatever it is, but I'm looking around, there weren't a whole lot of people that looked like me. And there was nobody that got up on that stage that looked like me, which is fine because there's a million conferences out there that are staffed fully by people that look like me. But it caught me in that moment. I was seriously uncomfortable, not in a get me out of here kind of way, but in a, I don't know that I've ever felt this way. And I actually asked both Allie and, and Kara were there. I turned to them at different points and said, don't take this the wrong way, but is this how it usually feels for you all when you go to conferences like this? where you look around and very few people look like you. Is that how it feels? Because, dang. And they both kind of responded with, well, I mean, yeah, kind of. But it occurred to me that I think in situations like that, they're so used to feeling that, that it didn't feel remarkable to them to feel that way. It felt remarkable to me in that moment. And so I spent the bulk of that conference in what I called shut up and listen, Dan, mode which was surprisingly difficult. <laughs> but I did it to the best of my, of my ability. There's, I mean, there's a couple of great anecdotes I could tell you, and I just don't have time. But catch me afterwards, I'll tell you the stories. There were just moments where I felt kind of an urge to speak up, and I, then I had to stop myself and go, no. Because what I realized is that space wasn't about me. They didn't, nobody made me feel unwelcome. Nobody pushed me off to the side. But it was very clear just being there that the people that were supposed to be centered, the people that were supposed to be celebrated, the people that were supposed to be normalized in that space weren't, wasn't me, wasn't people that looked like me. And suddenly I realized, guess what part of your job now is, kiddo? Now I feel called to center and celebrate and normalize voices that otherwise maybe don't get heard. 
And that can be difficult to do at times because, you know, who are those voices? Do they want to be centered? Do they want to be celebrated? There's all those different kinds of questions. But look back at uh, Deborah's story here for a minute. I want to point out this point again. She tells this military commander that God says he's to go off to battle and that God will deliver the opposing general into his hands. Barak, this other general, asks her to come with. And she says, well, I'll go. But if I go, you got to understand, when you win, the people are going to give me credit and not you. And somehow, someway, Barak is able to set his fragile male ego aside and say, you know what, that we win is more important than who gets the credit. So if your presence and your leadership there will help us win, and I believe it will, then that, I care more about that than I do about getting credit for that win as our kids enjoy us, really <laughs> join us. So in that moment, Barack is setting aside the need for credit and saying, no, I want to center, I want to celebrate, I want to normalize you, Deborah, as our leader, because that's the important thing. Get, you know, getting rid of this oppressive regime is the important thing. And if your presence helps us do that, fine, I don't care about credit. He celebrates, he centers, he normalizes female leadership. And that's something that I want to try and do myself as well. And I'm grateful for the opportunity because the three people I'm going to talk about here for the rest of the time that I have aren't in the room, and so they can't get mad at me for bringing them to the center of the room because they might otherwise. But I want to tell you what it's like to work with Rebecca Knotts. Because you know what they don't teach you at seminary? They don't teach you how to do the day-to-day operations of a church. They don't teach you how to structure a budget and how to maintain a budget, how to make sure the bills get paid and how to make sure that facilities are taken care of. They don't teach you the day-to-day just functionality of doing church. I'm literally going to write a letter back to Bethel and say, you all are missing a class in your MDiv program. Let me explain to you what you need. But I have learned an incredible... I thought at one point coming out of seminary that I might get into church planning right out of seminary. That would have been an abject disaster because I had no clue about how you do day-to-day stuff at a church. But if you sit with Rebecca for more than any small amount of time, you will learn how to do day-to-day operations at a church. She's terrific at it. She's detail-oriented. She's smart. She's focused. She has all of the stuff that she needs very well organized because that's who she is. And it's not that we haven't had great people do that job before. We have. But you need the right person in that spot. And if you don't have the right person in that spot, I promise you things would not run nearly as smoothly as they do around here. I've learned a ton working with Rebecca Knotts, and she should be centered, and she should be celebrated, and she should be normalized as a leader in this church. Yes. Let me tell you what it's like working with Allie Lee. When I was doing my internship at the end of my seminary degree, Allie absolutely delighted, and I mean capital D delighted, in calling me intern Dan, and of issuing forth the phrase, have the intern do it anytime something needed to be done. <laughs> I mean, she got the biggest kick out of doing that. God, I love her. But I tell you what, she's the most brilliant kids minister I've ever seen. Literally a genius, and I'm not being hyperbolic as I say that. One of the things when you do this internship, they have you set up goals 
what you're going to do and how you're going to achieve those goals, and then you report back, you know, this is how I achieved what I set out to achieve when I started this thing six months ago. And one of the very first things I had on my list was to get better at understanding and executing kids' ministry. Because I know how hard it is to do kids, or to do teaching to adults. I know how hard it is for me to get my head around this stuff. How am I explaining this stuff to a kid in a way that they can engage with without condescending to them, without turning it into this storybook nonsense? Because then kids grow up and they take this storybook faith with them and they'll go out into the real world, which is not a storybook. And too many of them have their faith fall apart because they were condescended to as kids. I didn't want to do that, but I didn't know how to not do that. And Allie, God bless her, put together an entire curriculum for me. Here's some kids' shows to watch. Here's some kids' books to read. Here's some other articles that you want to check out. All of that, together with actually doing kids' ministry on a fairly regular basis, all of that was enormously helpful to me in understanding that the important thing about kids' ministry isn't so much what you're teaching them, although that's there, but that you're teaching them, that they have a safe place to be, that they know that adults other than their parents care about them, that they have fun on a Sunday morning, that that this is a place that they want to be and they develop friendships and they develop relationships. That's the core of kids' ministry. And that I learn by working with someone as smart and as brilliant as Allie Lee. We can give her a hand too, by the way. So now I want to tell you what it's like working for Care Over Hage. And many of you know a lot of these things because you've gotten to work with a lot of these people, but I want to try and offer my perspective anyway. Kara is an encyclopedia of liturgical knowledge. Her ability to understand how to not only structure the liturgies that we have, but how to, how to construct a service, special services, how to put things together prayer-wise, all of the stuff, it, it, the catalog of knowledge in her head is just amazing. And I learned a ton about that. But the most important thing she's taught me, as usually is, is something I didn't know I needed to learn. Because when I came into the idea of being a pastor, I wanted to teach, right? That's why I adopted the title of teaching pastor. I wanted to open up scripture to people in the way that it had been opened to me. I wanted to show folks how God's love and grace and mercy drips from all of the different passages of scripture in ways that maybe not aren't obvious, but are exciting and are fun to realize and, and deeply, deeply move our hearts when we see what's there, when we see the heart of God. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to give the background and the context and all the things that allowed Scripture to come alive for folks. And that's part of being a pastor. That's, that's not a small part. It's, it's, a, it's a sizable portion of being a pastor, but it's not the most important part of being a pastor, and I thought it was. Whoops. What I've learned from Kara more than anything, and I bet I'm going to set heads nodding when I say this, the most important part of being a pastor is taking care of the people who see you as a spiritual leader because she's brilliant at that. And I didn't quite grasp what that meant. Teaching can be part of taking care of people, but the biggest part of taking care of people is understanding what they're going through and that when they're in the thick of it, it's rarely easy for them to be able to articulate what it is they need. And so part of our job as community leaders is to anticipate those needs so that when the crises hit, we can just act. We don't have to stop and say, what do you need? What can I do for you? Because people in the middle of it rarely are able to tell you what it is they need. But bringing them a meal, making sure chores are taken care of, just the basic stuff, they don't know and maybe in that moment that they need it, but man, it sure helps a ton. 
And there are a thousand different ways in which Kara leads us in taking care of folks and taking care of each other because that's the goal of the community. That's the goal of being together. That's what we're here to do. That's what being a pastor is really, really about. And I wouldn't have known that and I wouldn't have learned that if I didn't work for Kara for H. And I'm eternally grateful for that. So as you leave today, I want you to ask yourself a few questions. Yeah. I want, to ask, I want you to ask yourselves, what voices can you help lift up? What voices can you help center? What voices can you help marginalize and celebrate? Who is it that you see being pushed to the margins? Whose voices are out there that need to be heard? How is the church, unfortunately, complicit in pushing those voices to the margin? And how can we as our community, work together to restore those voices, to bring them back to the center, to bring them back to a place of being celebrated, to being back to a place where it's just normal and nobody has to preach sermons like this anymore because we all just get it. Think about Deborah. Think about her as a leader. Think about her as a voice that doesn't often enough get preached about. And think about how we as individuals and a community can start to center and celebrate and normalize those voices, those voices which so richly deserve to be heard. And if you're with me on that, say amen. 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 Thank you for listening to the Genesis Church Podcast. Our teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion. Creating opportunities for our community to respond from wherever they are in their faith formation. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary and a church calendar because they anchor us in something which can hold us no matter what life throws our way. Our goal is to become ordinary apprentices of Jesus who are learning to love God, ourselves, and others wholeheartedly. If you have any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit genesiscove.org.